Hello and welcome to another episode of Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Mike Pershawn. I teach in the Department of English at McEwen University, and the following was a lecture that I gave my students in the winter of 2021 in a course on 100 years of the horror film. Today's topic, Night of the Living Dead. There's a scene in the film version of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark where the teenager protagonists have run into a drive-in movie theater and are hiding out in a car. And a conversation starts up about the movie that's on the screen. And the teenagers talk as though they've seen the film not once but maybe twice, maybe three times. They talk about favorite scenes. They discuss it in the same way that people discuss movies today, where we have access to films through streaming, through DVDs, through Blu-rays, where we can watch and re-watch films uh, and analyze them and think about them extensively. And the movie that they're watching in this drive-in movie theater is none other than Night of the Living Dead. We can see up on the screen um, the uh, the actors uh, Carl Hardman playing Harry Cooper, uh, Marilyn Eastman playing his wife, Helen. And in the background, Judith O'Day as Barbara, um, and uh, it, it's it's a it's an accurate moment in this film that's set in uh, in in the case of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which is set in 1968, the year that Night of the Living Dead was released upon the earth, <laughs> and it was hugely successful uh, in uh, drive-in movie theaters and later on at midnight showings. It's hard to imagine a time when filmgoers didn't know what a zombie is. Um, zombies have been frequent fare in horror since the massive success of Night of the Living Dead, uh, starting with uh, the sequel to Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, um, which incidentally was released in the UK and in Europe uh, as zombies, which is where we had we get the conflation of the name zombies with Romero's films, because in Night of the Living Dead, uh, they're never referred to as zombies. They're just referred to as the living dead, these undead creatures. And zombies have been a, a steady fixture of horror films, mostly low budget. Uh, but then in the last two decades, they've had a serious renaissance. I uh, would say beginning with a cluster of films um, in which the Zack Snyder remake of Romero's Dawn of the Dead uh, featured as one of these. It wasn't the one that kicked it off, but it was one of these films, one of these films that stood out as big box office zombie movies. Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later was another one. There are people who would argue that that's not really a zombie film because they're not really zombies. And I'm like, shut up. We know what they are. Um, we recognize what that monster is. Uh, we don't want to get finicky about that, especially when we get into the discussion of how zombies came to be zombies in a Romero sense in the first place. It has more to do with the caprices of budgetary restrictions uh, than it has to do with serious intent on the part of the filmmaker. Um, and then we also had the, what do we call it, a zombie comedy. Uh, it's also been called a rom-zom-com, uh, Shaun of the Dead. All of those, those movies, those three movies, amongst many others, were released between 2002 and 2004 and sparked a profusion of zombie films. And just when we thought it was safe to go back in the graveyard, uh, AMC adapted Robert Kirkman's very successful comic book series, The Walking Dead. 
And it went on for many seasons. And so zombies have been with us and in fresh and vital ways over and over again for decades now. Um, and they continue to be revitalized, you know, uh, and, and, and to be played with, even if it's in ways that are poking fun at the genre, as in the case of movies like Zombieland or, you know, trying to put a romantic spin on it with Shaun of the Dead or with Warm Bodies, um, more recently, Anna and the Apocalypse, uh, making it into a musical. Why not? Um, so, you know, we watch a zombie movie and we have a very clear idea of what it is that we're looking at. But in 1968, those first viewers of Night of the Living Dead were seeing what was effectively a brand new monster. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that Romero crafted a new monster, created a new monster in Night of the Living Dead. Now, some will come back and say, no, wait a second, there were zombies before Romero. Yeah, absolutely, but they were voodoo zombies. They were something else. Um, and and there's there's a there's a different lineage here. Like certainly I think there's a there's a drawing from the mindlessness, uh the the vacant um controlled uh, body in m movies like I Walked with a Zombie, which was a Val Luton picture, or uh, just a few years before Night of the Living Dead was released, Hammer had made a movie called The Plague of the Zombies. But again, these were these were voodoo zombies, and I think Night of the Living Dead owes less to voodoo zombies or voodoo zombie films than it does to vampires. Interesting. In 1954, uh, horror. Um, author. He's, he's one of the greats. Uh, Stephen King has said, you know, Richard Matheson was his touchstone. Richard Matheson released a, a novel called I Am Legend. It's one of my favorite books. And apparently Matheson came up with the idea after having seen Dracula. If that's one vampire, apparently he thought to himself, what, what would it be like if you had a world? full of vampires. And that is the premise for I Am Legend. And the other interesting thing about I Am Legend isn't just this profusion of zombies, this, um, you know, the hordes of zombies that, that are, are not zombies, I keep saying zombies, um, of vampires in I Am Legend. Um, and they are, they are certainly vampires. Uh, the, the lead character, Neville, is able to um, kill them with a stake. And the usual things that affect uh, vampires still affect them in I Am Legend. But Matheson takes a, we might say, science fictional approach to explaining why these vampires exist. And and that's a, that's a certain departure from what cinematic vampires had been doing for the most part, with the exception of some of the vampire movies that were made in the, the late 1950s. And there were film adaptations made of I Am Legend... Um, the, uh, there was Vincent Price in The Last Man on Earth. By night they leave their graves, crawling, shambling through empty streets, whimpering, pleading, begging for his blood. So begging for his blood sounds like we've got vampires there. But when we get around to Charlton Heston and The Omega Man in 1971, so The Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price was made in 1964, a few years before Night of the Living Dead. And The Omega Man was made just a little while after Night of the Living Dead. And Wikipedia describes the monsters from The Omega Man as nocturnal albino mutants. I've not seen The Omega Man, so I can't know uh, 
whether or not that's what they called them in the film, but that's what they called it on Wikipedia. Look at me doing my research. Woo. Um, but uh, it, it's interesting that they're nocturnal albino mutants in 1971 and not just vampires. Why aren't they calling them vampires? Well, because vampires weren't the box office draw that they had been when Christopher Lee played Dracula in the film that was released in America as Horror of Dracula in 1958. So a decade later, vampires are no longer the thing. Um, they're not bringing the kids to the movie theaters. They, they, they had uh, sucked that corpse dry, I guess, um, to extend the metaphor. And so, you know, audiences were looking for something new. They were tired of Hammer Horror. They, the Hammer had um, denigrated into really formulaic content, uh, and they were trying to rely more on the shock value of just more gore and as moving as close as they could to softcore. Well, I could have made a good rhyme out of that, right? Like gore and softcore. Um, moving towards softcore porn um, and, and just trying to capitalize on the sex and the blood. And it would draw the audience in perhaps out of, you know, shock interest, but it's not the sort of thing that keeps them coming back. Doesn't make a great hit out of the, out of the film. Romero took what Matheson had in I Am Legend and utilized elements of it in Night of the Living Dead. Um, we have, you know, these scenes of Ben and the other inhabitants of this uh, empty house boarding the place up, basically creating a fortress out of it. And that's content that we see over, over, over and over again in I Am Legend, uh, looking out at the hordes that stand on the lawn. And this, by the way, um, goes right to something that uh, Romero has said about the zombies, the undead in Night of the Living Dead. He said, uh, they used to be Caribbean voodoo stuff. I made them the neighbors. And it's true that Romero made the undead the neighbors in Night of the Living Dead. But Matheson had already done it in I Am Legend. And this in no way is me going like, and that makes Matheson better because he wrote a book and Romero made a movie and movie, you know, obviously I don't think that teaching a course on horror film. I love film. I love the book. I Am Legend, but I also love what Romero does to um, appropriate some of its content uh, in a way that, that, he could use, you know, the, these, these tight budgetary constraints that he and his friends had in, in making this movie um, and turn it into something new and something that really captured um, the zeitgeist of the late 60s. So he makes them into the neighbors, just these regular everyday people. But we even need to be careful about the idea that Romero made it so. He's certainly responsible for putting that up on the screen. And perhaps he was thinking of the, the, the repetition from Matheson's novel, where one of the, uh, uh, the lead character's neighbors is out on the lawn constantly screaming, Come out, Neville! Um, that it really was one of his neighbors who was torturing him, this vampire neighbor. And then in Night of the Living Dead, these zombie neighbors. But it's just as likely that they're the neighbors because they were legitimately... Romero's Neighbors. Uh, Night of the Living Dead was made by friends and family. <laughs> and, and not just of Romero, but of the entire group of people. Uh, the film was a very low budget. 
and Romero and his friends put it together. They had been working, uh, a number of them had worked at a production company that made commercials and industrial films. Industrial films are like educational films uh, for training or like school movies. Uh, you, you don't see these anymore, but we used to. They'd bring these movies in and they would show us, you know, how to be good people, stuff that was like social guidance, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, I'm going to talk about Mystery Science Theater later, so I might as well talk about it now. Um, there's a there was a late night cable program in the 1990s called Mystery Science Theater where th they would mock old crappy movies, old terrible B movies, the worst of the B movies, and one of the films that Mystery Science Theater. Uh, took shots at, which is one of my favorite episodes, uh, is called Mr. B Natural. And it's a short industrial film about why you should uh, join band at school, why you should get into band class. Um, and But that is what Romero and his friends had been working on. They'd worked in, in commercial work, you know. Uh, they knew how to make beer look fantastic is is one of the things i read about what they had done prior and they wanted but they wanted to break into you know big show business they wanted to make a movie but as david konow says in his book real terror real r-e-e-l love the pun real terror the, the the hollywood system was impossible to crack back then and romero and his friends knew it and so rather than try to crack the Hollywood system, they did an independent film and hoped that they would be able to rely upon the new venues, uh, distribution venues of the drive-in movie theater and the midnight uh, movie theater as well, where exploitation films were often shown. Um, so this is a movie made by, as I say, friends and family, uh, right down to, you know, everybody pulling double duty. Uh, one of my favorite instances of this is uh, Marilyn Eastman, who plays Helen Cooper, the wife of Harry, who already, uh, you know, we, we spoke about a little bit earlier. Um, but she doubled as a zombie in one scene. Uh, she's the she's the bug zombie lady. She put, put, picks a bug off of a tree and shoves it in her mouth and eats it. And uh, interestingly, uh, Marilyn and Carl, Carl Hardman played uh, Harry Cooper. So they play husband and wife, but they were also the makeup team. And so everybody was pulling double duty. The, the guy who gets the tire iron in the head and we see the head wound was one of the production people. And the only reason he ended up in the movie as a zombie was because everyone else had gone home. They didn't have any of their regular zombies kicking around. So it's like, okay, we need to, we need to shoot this. And we need to shoot it now. So can you please come over here and, and we'll do this. Um, but the, the very, very low budget, very, very homegrown film. So when we see the zombie hordes in this movie, we are literally seeing the neighbors. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, a little bit of film trivia, but it's also part of what makes zombie movies scary that the person who lives next door to you could become that the person who lives with you could become that. And arguably that's true of vampire movies as well. But the, the, um, the formula for most vampire films is one at a time and it's not going to be hordes and it's not going to be the neighbors as it were, at least not until Stephen King would get his hands on vampires for Salem's lot. But what Romero and company were doing was steering us away from what Ben Hervey, the author of the BFI film classic on Night of the Living Dead, calls the wily and suave vampire. 
the wily and suave vampire of Universal and Hammer. And he has this long comparison of um, zombies and vampires that I think is really great, and I'd like to read it to you. So this is what he says. Vampires work alone. The ghouls are mindless and undignified. They overwhelm by sheer numbers. Majority rule. So vampires work alone. We get a single Dracula. We get a horde in Night of the Living Dead. And then he goes on to say that Romero crucially made this horde people eaters, always desperately hungry. While the vampire sips selected blood from delicate erotic punctures, the ghouls bury their faces in handfuls of reeking intestines, a grotesque vision of a society turning on itself, its citizens literally consuming each other. And there we can already feel ourselves being drawn towards some deeper meaning, some deeper reading of the zombies eating the flesh of other humans, that it's like, you know, like we're, this is, this is consumer gone madly wrong or consuming each other. I mean, that's not really where Ben Hervey takes it because he mostly catalogs the readings that other people have, have brought, but he is uh, edging towards uh, that reading there. And, and this the, the, the Creatures as People Eaters was an, even a departure from Matheson. Uh, Matheson had imagined his hordes as vampires, not as cannibals. And the cannibalism of, uh, of Night of the Living Dead was certainly one of the things that made it stand out as a horror film in its time. So in this course on 100 Years of Horror, we've been asking the question uh, that, um, you know, like, why horror? But not why horror broadly, because that's, that's, that's too broad. Instead, we are echoing the question that Andrew Tudor asks in Why Horror, The Peculiar Pleasures of a Popular Genre?, uh, which is, you know, why this particular horror at this particular time with this particular people, you know, the particulars of the moment. And it's, I think it's, it's, it's attractive to most um, young academics, to students, to dive for the, the implicit subtext before addressing the explicit text. And the explicit text of Night of the Living Dead says, you want to know why this horrified audience is at the end of the 60s? Because they'd never seen gore like this. They'd seen blood splashed all over the screen, and they'd even seen movies where there were body parts with you know, Curse of Frankenstein. Hammer traded heavily in gore. But Night of the Living Dead was disturbing for its gore because at some level it was real. It looked real. Well, and it was actually real because the uh, one of the um, uh, the film's backers was a meat packer, and they supplied the guts for this sequence that where the zombies are eating the remains of Tom and Judy after they've been blown up in the vehicle, um, and they're they're. This has been referred to as the Last Supper, by, apparently by um, the people who made the film. Um, but a meat packer supplied all this, the, this, this fresh, um, these fresh entrails, and then they poured water into them to make them look even fresher. So that when people bite into them, like you know, stuff would come out. Um, it was it was absolutely horrifying, and the makeup the makeup effects were you know they they were all right. They were they were disturbing, but to watch these monsters really chewing on what turned out to be real intestines. You didn't need color for it to be horrifying. 
the, the there's a way in which this movie in in a, in a sense reverses the horror of hammer while still outdoing them in this regard where you know this movie takes a step back we don't need color um and, and but again that wasn't an artistic choice that was a what can we afford choice but this film as i say still outdoes hammer for sheer brutality and we cannot ignore that in any exploration of what made night of the living dead so horrifying at at the time uh it was released in a two-year window between the end of the motion picture production code and the institution of the mpaa rating system and so there's this little window this little opportunity where romero and crew were able to sneak in and, and bring this film that just pushed the boundaries of you know what could be shown on screen in terms of explicit gore and explicit horror this is a good as good a time as any to identify one of Night of the Living Dead's other great um, uh, antecedents, one of its great sources, the uh, EC Comics, entertaining, I think it was entertaining comics, what that stood for. And EC Comics were known for um, their horror line, uh, comics like Tales from the Crypt, and the macabre stories that they told with these great shock endings. They were always somewhat relentlessly bleak endings in tales from the crypt we didn't see this these kind of endings in previous horror films but horror as a larger genre in comics through ec comics certainly had been producing the kind of narrative that we get in night of the living dead which uh as um as George A. Romero described it. The film opens with a situation that is already disintegrated to a point of little hope, and it moves progressively toward absolute despair and ultimate tragedy. Nobody comes riding in at the end with the secret formula that will save us all. The ghouls, in essence, win out. And that was... So it's not just the gore and the macabre imagery that inspire Night of the Living Dead, but inspires the very narrative itself um monsters rising up out of the grave that wasn't new um but doing that on screen in the way that romero does was and i and i want to talk about those things we can take a look at you know one of these covers from ec comics and see you actually there's a ton of (laughs) covers with um uh, ec comics where they're in a graveyard but there's this one particular one where we've got a guy in a suit being dragged down into the grave by a ghoul and i could not help but think of the opening sequence to night of the living dead which for my money is one of the creepiest and i think it's because of the way in which the first zombie the first on-screen zombie in the movie is so far back initially he's just He's just over there, and he looks utterly benign at first. A little weird, but he's in a suit. Looks like a pretty regular guy from a distance. And Johnny and Barbara, brother and sister, have come to this graveyard to pay their respects. Uh, and Johnny doesn't want to be there. Barbara thinks they need to be. Uh, they are, they're having these arguments, and Johnny looks over, and he sees this figure in the distance. And this whole sequence has a little bit of the past and where um, Night of the Living Dead is going to push us towards the future of horror. Again, or maybe I haven't said it at all today, I don't know. Night of the Living Dead is a pivot point in horror. We shift from where horror has been 
to where modern horror is. A lot of writers doing work on modern horror, scholars working on modern horror, start with Night of the Living Dead. This is the movie, they say, that separates early or classic horror films from modern horror films. Lots of earlier films had begun in graveyards. This is a standard place for monsters to hang out. We saw the Frankenstein monster hanging out in a graveyard in Bride of Frankenstein. Here, we're just visiting a graveyard for utterly banal reasons to visit a family member. But there's this wonderful moment when the actor playing Johnny, who incidentally was uh, the producer, <laughs> one of the producers of the, of the movie, um, of Night of the Living Dead, says to Barbara, they're coming to get you, Barbara. And the voice that he uses here is an overwrought, overdone, stereotyped, sort of like when we do Arnold Schwarzenegger version of Boris Karloff. He's doing a Boris Karloff voice. This ooh, same kind of voice that we hear in Monster Mash, uh, trying to play off of, 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 of the exagger an exaggerated version of Karloff's voice. And so there's this throwback, this callback, to classic horror here at the outset of Night of the Living Dead. But the film doesn't take very long to just throw that all out the window and subvert expectations uh, of, the, of the audience members. And she, you know, Barbara walks by this guy almost like she's walking by a homeless person on the street or someone who's really creepy, but isn't necessarily a monster. She doesn't go running, screaming. She's doing the don't make eye contact move if she, as she walks by him. And then suddenly he just lurches out and attacks her. And the violence is sudden. And the camera work changes drastically. Now, there is a technical reason for this. Again, budgetary constraints. This is a one camera movie. Tiny little camera. And whenever they would do dialogue, they had to enclose it in a sort of bubble. So the rig for sound recording, um, and the reason they had to enclose it in the bubbles because it was a noisy, noisy camera. The sound of the, the film passing through the, the, the mechanism was really, really loud. So if it's an action sequence, they could do handheld because it was a really tiny camera. If they were going to shoot dialogue, it had to be stationary because the rig for sound was so big. And so we get these really jarring contrasts between very stationary camera work during dialogue sequences. And then suddenly when, when everything hits the fan, the camera starts to move in this, you know, handheld way that evokes a sense of realism in a, in, in a throwback or a reference to journalism. Um, handheld camera work is sort of intuitively associated with realistic camera work. And so once we go to the handheld and the action becomes more frantic, the scene feels a little more real. We should also know that the choice, budgetary constraint or not, of black and white film also tended to make the film feel more real at this point. There were lots of color pictures, technicolor pictures, rich color pictures, but the color of technicolor was cinematic color which was more vibrant in many ways than the real world tended to be. Black and white, the old-fashioned academy, academy ratio black and white that this movie is shot in, mirrors what was on the television, what was on the evening news. And so again, the association in the mind of the viewer might not be, oh, this film feels old-timey, although there's something to be said for that as well, and we'll talk about that in a little bit but that it might have felt like, oh, this feels like news footage. This feels real, right? So we get this sudden attack by this monster. And what I think is 
interesting about the makeup work for our initial zombie is that he's not rotting. Our initial undead doesn't look like he's just come out of a grave. He just looks a little off. And that somehow makes him more terrifying to me because he just seems like a slightly regular guy with something a little wrong. Um, Johnny jumps in to protect Barbara and it was it was it is almost impossible to get a clear shot if you do screen captures of this sequence it's frantic frenzied combat between Johnny and this undead attacker and we've got to remember that the audience has no idea what's going on here now they've come to a movie called Night of the Living Dead so they're going to be like that might be one of the living dead but he looks so normal, right? So what does it mean to be the living dead, right? They're probably expecting somebody to rise up out of the ground, hands coming up out of, the, out of a grave. Uh, and here we've got this guy just walks out of nowhere and looks relatively normal and gets into this scrap with Johnny. And we have to think too, what might have been the assumptions of an audience watching a movie like this in the late 60s? Well, Johnny looks pretty clean cut and normal American hero maybe he's going to be the hero of this picture. And then he, get his he then he gets his head bashed on a gravestone and he's dead like that. That's EC Comics right there. Not a great big grandiose death, not a, oh, you know, he saved the world death. Just uh, he wanted to save his sister and inadvertently got his head bashed on a uh, gravestone. It seems like utterly accidental in the way that the film portrays it. And suddenly the likely hero is dead. And now we switch to who the heroine might be. There are, again, those conventional elements uh, still being utilized here. A little bit of lightning and some thunder in the background. A relatively standard chase, but I love the way that it's done because it has the feel of a nightmare to it. You're running, but you can't get away, you know. Homer, Homer wrote that thousands of years ago, that, that it is like in a nightmare where you are running and running, but you just can't get away. And that's Barbara. And her, her pursuer isn't running after her. It's shambling after her. It's stumbling. It's not keeping pace, but it's always there. When she looks out from the side of the house and sees him still there, that horror begins to build. Where can Barbara go to get away? Oh, go into the house. Go into, well, of course you want to go into the dark and scary house that's lit like an expression, a German expressionist film. So again, some callbacks to longtime horror techniques. Uh, empty house, creepy house, lit in a creepy way uh, with gobo lighting, which is theater lighting when you want to like focus, you want to really get tight focus from your light. Um, lit as Barbara is walking around the house and when she, you know, she finally, uh, you know, she sees the corpse, uh, this gooey, icky corpse. What the heck happened there anyway? Uh, did it get chewed on? Were the zombies in the house earlier? We never really find out. Um, and I love the, the level of irresolution that this film uh, employs, especially when we think about how resolved many of the movies that we've watched already uh, in this course have been, that there isn't a strong sense of closure to the narrative. And then along comes Ben, who turns out to be as close as we're going to get to a hero of this film. And he's not the all-American white boy, but he is rather a black man and a very well-spoken black man. We should note this as well, by the way, that the original script called for him to be a lot more tough talking. They weren't looking for a black actor, 
Um, but they were looking for someone who could do like some tough talking and, and Dwayne Jones said, that's not how I talk. And so he, he had lived a lot of his lines using the, the, the screenplay as a starting point, but then speaking them in his own, uh, in his own way. And, um, so along comes Ben and we've still got that sort of dark expressionist lighting. Um, but then the movie takes another turn when Ben has to go toe to toe with the zombies, because in a vampire movie, um, as Ben Hervey notes, uh, killing a vampire had almost achieved the point of like religious ritual. There was a lot of shit to do when you were going to take down a vampire. You know, we've got our garlic, we've got our holy water, we've got a steak, and we've got to do it just right. And if we don't, then he's going to come back because we need a sequel. Um, and here we've just got a tire iron, a regular old tire iron. Just grab the closest blunt object and go to town. Uh, that doesn't deal with the zombies ultimately. Shot in the head will, and that cements a shot in the head or a puncture wound to the head um that cements the uh the idea of you know you gotta you gotta destroy the brain that becomes a fixture of zombie uh narratives for for most most of the most of the subgenre but that that's a departure again um but then we get the lights come on and it's 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 almost as though the film is going okay well we're done with that now we're, we're done with getting you settled and getting you set for the traditional horror picture, but we're also letting you know that this isn't a traditional horror picture the whole time. So I think the opening sequence acts as an homage to the types of films that precede Night of the Living Dead, while at the same time letting the audience know we're headed into new territory. And I don't know how much of this was ex was was Romero and the rest of the the folks at Image Ten, their production company, um, being being aware of what they were doing, or if it was just like, hey, you know, it would be cool. Uh, if we did this, the movie was largely shot in sequence. Uh, so it's difficult to know how much was intention and how much was just, this is how we've, we set up the movie for the day, but there's an argument to be had. And Ben Hervey makes it that this movie works a little bit like what Frederick Jameson called star Wars, which was a nostalgia picture where the movie evokes a sense of the, of the kind of films you saw when you were younger. So the drive-in movie crowd had to be old enough to, you know, drive a car, get into a movie that would be, you know, adult rating kind of thing kids aren't supposed to see, uh, or older. Midnight showings in New York, yeah, you got to be old enough to, you know, to, to go see those movies. So what nostalgia would these people be referencing 1950s films? You know, we got to go back 10 years. And as we learned last lecture, uh, what dominated American horror in the 1950s? Um, uh, horror science fiction films. And this movie in Night of the Living Dead in many ways follows the pattern of those movies. There's an invasion of some kind. Nobody knows what's going on. But in this case, there's no like spaceship that's landed. Although we do get this reference to this Jupiter probe, uh, which... Romero was really sad that he he put in. He wishes he'd just left it more mysterious, but uh, later films didn't didn't refer back to it, so you know it didn't stay in zombie lore that you had to have a, a spaceship involved. Um, in fact, in in more recent years, uh, we've used zombies to address our fears of pandemic 
of, uh, of, of, of outbreaks of, of virulent viruses. But we get these moments with, you know, uh, the television, um, you know, they, once they get the television turned on, the news can tell them what's going on. And, uh, and all of the places, by the way, many of the places in, in that are shown on the, on the TV during the, the, these news bulletins are places that were local around Pittsburgh. And it was one of the, the things that um, Romero thought might bring people to come out and see the movie is they'd see the name of their town up on the screen. Hmm. Um, so, but, but this is, this is a, this is a standard fixture of those types of science fiction films is like breaking news and they keep trying to let them know what's going on. But the difference with night of the living dead is that they never quite seem to know what's going on. The experts don't have an answer. They don't have a secret formula. They don't have a radioactive bullet. The other thing that might have caused the audience to go, this feels like those movies I used to watch, aside from the black and white, and again, the Academy ratio of the picture uh, would have hearkened back to those times. Um, there's also a way in which I think this film feels like a Twilight Zone episode. Uh, but uh, the music for the film was from the Capitol H uh, High Q Library. Uh, so we're looking at a music library. There was no original score made for this film, and some of the musical cues in it are from a movie called Teenagers from Outer Space, which was another terrible B-movie that Mystery Science Theater mocks. And so the, the, there's a way in which this movie is subtly referencing the science fiction horror of the 1950s, but it's doing something new as well. So it, it's, it's got us in a very comfortable place where we go, oh, I know what this is. You know, like when we meet the young, good-looking characters of Tom and Judy, we're like, oh, maybe they're the heroes, right? I, I can just imagine the, the, the audience constantly going, oh, I know what happens here. They're going to take the truck and they're going to go and they're going to gas it up and everything's going to be okay. And then truck lights on fire and things are going sideways and Tom jumps out of the truck and Judy gets her coat caught and she can't get out. And And, and audience expectations for what happens in moments like this in film are related to the, the type of the actor who's in the role. And the guy who was playing Tom was actually a local singer, <laughs> but he, he looks like he's physically capable enough to just reach in and, you know, pull Judy out of there. My coat is caught. This is as capricious as the moment when Johnny gets his head bashed on the uh, cemetery, in, in the cemetery. Complete, stupid, meaningless accident. Tom can't get Judy out in time, and the truck blows up. I can't help but think of the way that Steven Spielberg utilized Tom Cruise at the height of his everyman American action hero fame, or maybe not the height, because, I mean, he's just sort of kept going with it with the Mission Impossible series. But when Spielberg made his War of the Worlds movie, and he cast Tom Cruise as a loser deadbeat dad who doesn't have a plan for how to stop the Martians... Uh, you know, I think that kind of casting is brilliant. And I think Night of the Living Dead does this over and over again, not with big name stars, but with character types and with the sort of thing that we'd seen in uh, science fiction horror in the 50s, where there were these resolute heroes who were just going to pull things off. And the movie keeps doing this over and over again. It does it once again with um, the moment when Helen, uh, the, the wife, is being savaged by these zombies by the door 
and the camera goes over to Barbara and Barbara gets this look of resolution on her face. And in the, the in the audio commentary for Night of the Living Dead uh, from the Criterion Collection, um, the actors who are recalling what it was like to do that, I think it's actually uh, Judith O'Day says, oh, here she goes. So the, the actress who played Barbara, um, you know, here she comes to save the day because she grabs this board. She gets this look of resolution on her face. She dashes forward and immediately the zombies have her. And then in Injury added to insult, up rolls Johnny with his driving gloves, which immediately mark him as Johnny, even though he's missing his glasses and his hair doesn't look as good anymore. It's Johnny. And Johnny is the one who drags her into the horde so that they can chow down. I mean, it's it's so dismal. It's not just, oh, Barbara dies. Barbara doesn't even do anything aside from momentarily freeing Helen so Helen can go down to the basement and die. So there were all of these things going on in Night of the Living Dead. The intense gore, which was like an extra level of shock, a hearkening back to the science fiction horror of the 1950s, but doing it with a twist. But audiences saw more than just these things. And where Bride of Frankenstein is a work that has been said to be in search of significance, Night of the Living Dead, just like its horde of zombies, has a surplus of significance. And most of, of Ben Hervey's BFI studies addresses this statement. Political readings were almost inevitable. Political readings of Night of the Living Dead were almost inevitable. In 1968... It would be almost impossible to watch a movie and not have a political reading. As Hervey puts it, 1968 unreeled like one long horror film without logic, explanation, or happy endings. There was footage from Vietnam on the television, and it was graphic footage. People being shot in the head. Uh, the awareness of the My Lai massacre, that American troops had slaughtered villages of Vietnamese. Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy had been assassinated. Black leaders had renounced nonviolence. The Chicago police had gassed and clubbed peaceful demonstrators outside the 1968 Democratic Convention. And there were more horrors just around the corner. So that by the time Night of the Living Dead was being shown in midnight movie theaters, the Manson murders had already happened. It was just as 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 Hervey says, 68 unreeled like one long horror film, and the years that followed weren't necessarily much better. And so people viewed the movie through that lens. It's not so much that Romero and his associates meant for there to be a ton of political or social or racial subtext, although, as we'll find out, there was some intention at the end of the film but rather that there were these capricious moments. They were casting friends and family. They were taking whatever they could get and making this movie by the seat of their pants. This movie was made for $114,000. So how much intentionality can we really put into the mise-en-scene insofar as the... The, the, the sort of racial makeup of the zombie horde or the, the middle class makeup of the zombie horde. But those readings were inevitable. And so some people saw the movie as commenting on the breakdown of the American family, as referenced in The Coopers. Harry Cooper was the man. He was the establishment. He looked establishment. He's middle class, old white guy. 
So, you know, he's not just a despicable character as character, but he gets read as this um, em- emblem of, of, uh, the, of authority, um, that the family itself is fracturing, right? And has this problem uh, st- staying together uh, that, that culminates in their daughter killing them. Right. Uh, when uh, Karen finally becomes a, a fully, un, you know, she is undead. She is zombie and, and eats, you know, first eats her father's arm and then stabs her mother to death. And this, by the way, was like one of the greatest atrocities of this film. Uh, and I think it still holds a certain amount of horror to it. Any moment where, you know, the supposed innocence and of childhood is rendered monstrous is uh, for many people an extra level of monstrosity. But there have been readings of this that are like, Oh, you know, this is uh, what um, this is young people rebelling. This is a, a young child punishing her parents for the terrible childhood that they gave her. And I'm like, okay, that stop it. You know, that's to me, that's the point at which we've dug the subtext in a bit too far because we have no idea what, their family life was like before this night. Maybe this is just where Harry and, uh, you know, Harry and Helen just unraveled, but maybe things weren't so bad before. We don't know. And so that kind of a reading, I think, I think is, is, is problematic. I mean, even Harry as emblematic of a white authority figure seems less, I, I feel like the film is less about that than it is about many other things, namely horror. But the reading that I will absolutely back up is the racial one. Now, this was amplified by um, Continental Pictures distributing Night of the Living Dead on a double bill with a movie called Slaves, which was about antebellum slavery. Uh, For the slave, courage knew no chains. For the master, desire knew no color. In the savage world of the Old South. Apparently, this is a terrible movie. I've never seen it. Stars uh, singer Dionne Warwick. Um, But apparently, it's poorly acted, and it's not a really great portrayal of what actually happened in slavery. It It was a black exploitation movie. But you put it on a double bill with Night of the Living Dead, and you're playing the association game. If someone watches the movie Slaves about black slavery in America and then watches Night of the Living Dead, well, the end of the movie is going to take on a very different meaning, uh, or at least it's going to amplify the meaning that's already there. We also need to keep in mind that um, EC Comics was transgressive, not only for its gore and its shocking endings, but also for the way in which it had absolutely no problem in representing race, somewhat Fairly, we don't want to say too fairly. I mean, EC Comics wasn't constantly using black characters, but uh, famously, issue 33 of Incredible Science Fiction featured a uh, a story called Judgment Day. And in it, uh, there's this astronaut who travels to a planet, and there's these orange people, and there's these blue people, and the one group is privileged, and the other group is oppressed and don't have rights. And at the end of the comic, there's this surprise moment that the astronaut who has been observing this inequality is black. And uh, Comics Code wanted to censor that. They wanted changes. EC Comics wouldn't do it. And I can't help but wonder if that didn't influence uh, Romero and his friends as well. As I've already said, they, they weren't looking for a black actor when they got Dwayne Jones. And by Caprice they didn't really cast any of the posse 
at the end of the movie. The uh, posse, Ben Hervey calls them the verite posse. Whenever we've got cinema verite, uh, which was big in the 70s, so we're coming up on that. Um, When we get cinema verite, it's when the movie feels real. Right when it feels real, looks real, everything about it—the mise en scène, the sound, everything, camera work—is meant to be uh, to be real. And this verite posse was made up of uh, the local <laughs> local radio uh, helicopter. So that is that's a helicopter from a local radio crew, and they came by and they're like, "Yeah, sure, you can film us flying around in this, and we can we can do some camera work from up high." Um, some of the police officers that we see in this sequence are real Pittsburgh police officers who brought dogs and vans, real locals with their clothes and guns. They just showed up. And this sequence was mostly unscripted. Romero said he mostly just ran around shooting footage of these guys acting as though they were shooting down zombies. There's a few staged moments, but a lot of it was was relatively unscripted. And so it has this sense of a, a, a realism to it. And some critics referred to this group as rednecks, even though this film isn't set in the South. And it was probably because of the way that this film ends, where Ben is the last survivor of the group who's been holed up in the house. And we think, oh, here we go. He's going to get rescued. And he looks out the window and the posse sees him and they shoot him. And he's dead so fast. It's not even a cathartic death. He doesn't go down on the ground and slowly writhe or anything like that. We don't get a sense of like, you know, the the depth of, of the tragedy here in that sense. It's just brutal. He's dead. He's down. And they're like, we got him. And then the movie does something that blew me away and felt... Um, I don't want to say reminiscent because I think it's the other way around, but it felt like the end of Black Klansman where Spike Lee goes to real footage of, um, of news, news coverage of white supremacy in America, recent white supremacist, right, white supremacist marches and, and whatnot and the violence. This, these, these grainy still shots that they deliberately developed to have a higher grit and grain to them to make them look a little more real. I think it's so bizarre that we think that grainy, <laughs> grainy footage feels more real. That is so weird because the re- in the real world, our eyes are seeing far above any grainy rate most of the time. Um, but we've got Ben and he's dead. The hero of the movie is dead. He's dead suddenly and without comment. And then in come the posse with hooks. And this, I was jarred by this. I was like, what the hell? is going on here. Well, apparently these hooks were the, they would use meat hooks in lynchings. Um, and when the hooks go into Ben, he bleeds. So maybe he's not quite dead yet, or maybe his, his killers know that he's not quite dead yet. That's something Ben Hervey wonders about. I just think they're doing that for like, let's put in some more gore here at the end of the picture, but they drag him out unceremoniously while the credits are rolling. And none of this is, 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 is moving footage. It's all still shots. And it's incredibly disquieting. There are, there are certain shots that are really close, grainy, uh, really close, grainy shots of the killers. And it feels like we're watching an expose of a lynching. He's thrown onto the pile right next to the zombie who intru- we were introduced to at the very beginning of the film, sort of zombie number one, the one that, that killed Johnny. And so we can't help but escape conflation again, just like watching slaves and then watching Night of the Living Dead. You put two things side by side and the human brain goes, I have to create associations. And so we start to, we start to go like, you know, is there a relation here between the zombies and, and the way that 
you know, blacks were being treated. It just raises all these questions, but gives us no answers. And then we get the burning at the very end. And that is evocative of lynchings. All, all of this, the, a, a black man thrown on a pile of scrap wood and then lit on fire. The connotation is inescapable. In as much as Hervey notes that political readings were almost inevitable, those other political readings feel more like the audience reading their own situation onto the film. Um, whereas this finale seems very intentional. And Dwayne Jones said it was his idea. There were all sorts of ideas bandied around for the ending of the film, including Barbara suddenly coming back and rescuing Ben. And Dwayne Jones argued for this bleak ending. And thankfully, Romero went for it. These things are always very difficult to tease out, you know, whose idea was it? Um, but whatever the case may be, uh, and, and I want to echo something Ben Hervey says, he says, I won't attempt to force Night of the Living Dead into a single coherent analogy or allegory. I won't either. I don't think that we can do that with this film. I think it was made, this was guerrilla filmmaking at its finest. But this last sequence, there is this serious intentionality about it. And as Hervey also says, and I thought this was great, can realism ever be ideologically attached, ideologically detached and self-contained? Whenever a film is made in a realistic fashion, Hervey seems to be saying, it um, invites a comparison with what is going on in the real world. I want to end with a quote. I'm quoting Hervey quite a bit here. Great, great BFI films, classics book. Um, but he states near the end of the, the, the book that he has this great exploration of, of what Night of the Living Dead was doing in the history of horror. And this is what he says. Horror stages confrontations between normality and the monstrous. And this is a definition that comes up over and over again in horror criticism. That horror stages confrontations between normality and the monstrous. And, monst and the monster uh, threatens normality. And most pre-night films are ultimately, at least ostensibly, about overcoming death and monstrosity. From Night of the Living Dead on, so here we have that idea of like the modern horror movie, this is the emergence of it. From Night on, horror more often asserts that nothing will save us, that death and failure are insuperable. More crucially, Night's ending makes inescapably clear that we do not want to see normality restored. Normality itself in 1968 is monstrous, and it still is to this day. I mean, I, I can't help but think of our past year and think of the monstrosities that we have witnessed. Normality itself is monstrous, a brutal, painful repression. Romero says for him that the most important thing about horror and science fiction is to not restore order to leave, but to leave the world as we know it in, in bloody shreds. So it should not restore order. Night of the Living Dead does not restore order. This is the distinction between Andrew Tudor's um, secure and insecure horror. Secure horror ends, Little Red Riding Hood, Woodman kills Wolf, everything's okay, we live happily ever after, even though there was a monster. But the monster's dead now. Insecure horror, the monster may be dead, but the monstrosity remains. The monster hasn't been killed. The monster is ultimately unkillable, which is really why we are doing this in the first place, says Romero. We don't want things the way they are, or we wouldn't be trying to shock you into an alternative place. 
Night's pleasures, says Hervey, come not from restoring normality, but from dismembering it. And on that note, we end with Night of the Living Dead. But talking about dismembering, next up in our hundred years of horror, start up your chainsaws, folk. We've got Leatherface coming at you with Toby Hooper's absolutely insane independent film, a little bit like Night of the Living Dead, and that it was very low budget and shot in guerrilla fashion, but with more drugs. Um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre next time on Triple Bladed Sword.